with you again. And congratulations, church. <laughs> I know we congratulate Pastor Daniel and Lynette, but wow, it's special for you guys to have a young pastor adding to this family a new daughter. Uh, my heart is full of joys. I'm sure yours is too. Pray for them. They're going to go through many sleepless nights, as you well remember. And uh, just, uh, wow, just rejoice. What a joy. Well, let's pray together before we consider uh, the small letter of Third John today. Would you? Gracious Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Father, that through your spirit, you give birth to spiritual children, that we can see your family grow as your gospel is embraced, as hearts are changed. We pray that you would help us to be your ambassadors and teach us today some principles about the calling, the reason for which we're saved. Thank you, Father, for the blessing of little Elise Grace. We ask your many blessings on the Sisler family. I thank you for this church, for their heart for you. Father, we all need to grow. And so today, help us to grow spiritually together. By your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you missed last week, I was able to be with you last week. I am an assistant pastor up at Cornerstone Baptist Church, which many years ago was one of the the places where this church uh, came from. So uh, I've... uh, it's so, it's so great to be able to be part um, of your worship service here today. I'm going to invite you to just consider with me something. You know, when you say kids are dismissed in this church, half the church leaves. And I know it's, it's still just, it's, I find it remarkable. It's an amazing thing. You know, pretty soon you guys are going to probably need a children's pastor. <laughs> After that, you probably need a youth minister, right? And then you're going to need discipleship pastor as they grow. And it's an amazing thing God's doing. And uh, I remember uh, we served in Illinois at a church, and um, the opening came for us to call a children's pastor. And so um, there was a, you know, we did a nationwide search, <laughs> and eventually we, we uh, as elders, kind of came up with a, there was this one candidate we kind of knew, this was the guy, but you have to persuade, you know, the leadership of the church, and you got to persuade the church and all that, so you got to present. So we... Uh, we were getting together with all the, the, the deacons, and it was, it was a big church. I was a church of about 900 people, so the, the committees and the leadership things just get bigger and bigger <laughs> when the church is bigger. Um, this was a fellow who'd grown up in the church. His dad had been a pastor in the church, and we all knew him. But sometimes when you know a guy, there's that kind of like, well, we all kind of know. Like, are we allowed to bring somebody in that we know so well? And I remember, like, the, kind of, the question came up, like, well, what are we going to say to people when, you know, we've done this big search and then we come up with this guy who's just been here all along? I'll never forget when one of the other pastors stood up in this meeting, and it was a big meeting. It was a full room. It was about like this size. And he said, here's what I want to say about this man. He's well spoken of by everyone. Everybody. Ask anybody in this city, and they speak well of him. And he was known. He, he was in charge of a, a whole bunch of different ministries in the city, outreach, different sports camps and things. He had been very involved. He goes, you find me a person who doesn't speak well of him. I just want you to let that sink into your heart. 
It is one of the things that we often skip over that is one of the qualifications of an elder, that he's well spoken of by outsiders. That's remarkable. No one could say a bad word about him. And you could just see the room as everyone just processed that. and was like, huh, yeah, that's a thing. It's so precious when someone's testimony is such that they're well spoken of by outsiders. In the little letter of 3 John, without question, we have a letter written by the elder who almost without exception is agreed to be the Apostle John. And he's written to an individual named Gaius. And two other people are named in here by name. It is a very personal letter. Small enough for you to write on a memo pad piece of paper. It's very small, but it is packed. Let me read, if you would read with me, let me read aloud this little letter, 3 John. And what I want you to, I want, I want you to receive this like someone is handing you a letter and you're reading this. So this is to you, this is to me, right? Read this as a, a personal letter. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I'll bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil is not seeing God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony And you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. You know, throughout this small letter, 
we see again this harmony between truth and love. Remember that we're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. We see this in Ephesians 2 verse 10. We see this in Paul's letter to Titus. We need to be zealous for good works. That's what we're saved for. We don't exist to treat our salvation like some little monopoly card, get out of jail free card that we, that we stick in a shoebox and tuck up on a shelf. And then we just sit back in our easy chair and watch our favorite news channel. No, that's not what we're saved for. We're saved to be active. And if you and I won't be obedient, then we're not doing what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be full of love. You remember to his letter to the Galatian church, the Apostle Paul is dealing with people who are saying, oh, if you're a Christian, you've got to do all these extra things. And he's saying, no, 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 no. Don't add anything to this. All that matters is faith working through love. Like that's our job. So the challenge we laid out last week was, to, are you living your purpose? Are you showing love? We live in a society, a modern society, that's very isolated and individual, where we, we, we like to have our own things, our own space, our own things. <laughs> and uh, even a younger generation that doesn't want to even start families, they don't want to have kids, they don't want to have to go and suffer through what? Through love, because that's what it takes. And love gives, love aches, love sacrifices. That's, that's what it's like. But that's what we're for. <laughs> we're supposed to be living this way. Okay. If you will follow me through this passage, I want to just unfold it for you. And Pastor Daniel may go back through and really do a fine-toothed comb study, but just work with me. It's only 15 verses. And uh, as we go through, let me just kind of pick it apart, small section at a time. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. So who is this fellow Gaius? He is the recipient of this letter. A letter is being handed to a guy written by the apostle John. And we know that John loves this guy. He trusts him. We can see he trusts him both in what he says about him, but also in the, the information in this little letter. And he's telling him, These are some, this is some things going on. I trust that you're going to get this and you're going to know how to handle this. And you're going to respect the authority with which I'm writing. Gaius is a good guy. <laughs> that's, that's where we start. So the elder is John. The beloved Gaius is the recipient whom he trusts. And notice here, whom I love in truth. There's two senses of this. One is who oh, I genuinely, I really love you. <laughs> but also we share something in common. We're not just, you know, merely strangers who we're supposed to show love to. But we abide together and we, we confess the same truth. And friends, that should bring a special bond. Like the church should be a special place where like we really sense how much we love one another in church. One of the sad realities, maybe you've gone through some of this, is that so often churches can be places where a whole bunch of sinful weeds are allowed to grow up and a whole bunch of stresses between people. We're going to see that even, that's nothing new. It's been going on for a long time even as early as the early church. Friends, just a challenge. Don't let the church become a place where the same sinful issues that flourish in the world flourish here. Don't let it. And it begins not with you pointing at your neighbor and going, elbow zone. <laughs> no, it begins with you examining your heart. The scripture is a mirror. 
We're supposed to put it up to our face, and we're supposed to look in it and be shocked by what we see there and change. So remember that. Verse 2 says, Beloved, I pray all may go well with you, that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. I mean, it's a kind greeting to say, hey, hope you're doing well. Hope everything's well with you. Hope you're, you're healthy. We don't know. Maybe this guy had some health issues. Maybe that's buried underneath there. We don't really know that. Um, but it's touching that John cares for him in every way. I care for your health. I care for your soul. You know, many prayer meetings churches that still have prayer meetings. There's a lot of health issues that get raised up. We, we find this in our prayer meetings at church. Oh, pray for my extended related aunts, cousins, friends who's related to their neighbor, and they have health issues, right? <laughs> the question is usually, are they saved? <laughs> Which is the more important question, right? Are they born again? What should we be praying for? What, how does our heart work? We need to pray about both our physical needs and our spiritual things. This is why we sing, it is well with my soul. <laughs> hey, our bodies are going to break down in this sin-struck world. We're going to break down, friends. But our spirits should be renewed day by day. Our soul, by the grace of Christ, should not be breaking down. It should be getting better and better. You think about that with me. Our bodies are breaking down, but the soul better and better. Some people you go to church with for 30 years, and you're like, is your soul better after 30 years in church? I mean, I can see your body's broken down. <laughs> is your soul better? It should be better. Verse 3 is, is a remarkable thing. And, and I, I shared that story about the, the pastor who our church ended up calling and became the children's pastor, how others spoke well of him. Look at what John says. I rejoiced greatly that when the brothers came, so other people came, and they testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. It's the sweetest sound, one of the sweetest sounds that I can hear from people in church is when they whisper good things about other people. You know how precious that is? It's a, pre- it's a beautiful thing. So many churches, people whisper grumblings, right? Oh, this, oh, other, oh, this guy. Oh, this guy. <laughs> that lady right? No, when you hear good reports and you whisper good things, oh, that, whew, as a pastor, I tell you, man, that just makes my heart rejoice. And you can see it made John's heart rejoice greatly. That, that great joy, we said last week, and I remind you again, it's one of the curious uses of the Greek word eureka. <laughs> it's like, ah, full of joy. What makes you full of joy? It's the soccer season. Some of us get full of joy when something amazing happens on the soccer field. Or if you're a football fan, right? Whatever your sports team is, full of joy. In the Christian life, there should be things that fill us with joy. And there's really no greater joy than to see those we've invested in, whether it's our own biological children or whether it's our spiritual disciples, to see that they're walking in the truth. You live a little bit and you see some of the, your own children walk away from God, or you see some of those who you've poured your life into, they've gone to church with you forever, maybe they've been discipled by you, and you see them walk away, that just shatters your heart, it breaks your heart. Look at how John talks about this. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. 
Let that be a challenge to you today. Where is your greatest joy? Can you say that that's your greatest joy? I really let that sink into your heart. Like, what, what is your greatest joy? What is my greatest joy? To see that my children are walking in the truth. That's an amazing thing. You know, my mom uh, had, she was a cancer survivor. She has since gone home to be with the Lord about, about a, a year ago. But, um, you know, I was about 15 when my mom uh, contracted cancer for the first time. I was the youngest child. And she had seen my elder siblings kind of grow up and walk with the Lord. I was still in that teenage phase where hmm, there were issues. And she told me years later, she goes, my, one of my greatest fears was that I would pass away without ever seeing you walking in the truth. I was like, wow, like that, that was what you were worried about? You weren't worried about like cancer killing you? She's like, no. Like the thing that broke my heart more than anything was to, the worry about my kids. Like, is he going to walk with God? Tell you what, that's a profound, if you got kids, you get it. Like, like the older they get, the more you're like, oh my, it's just, you know. <laughs> I think I was saying, Jared, he's like, man, you're going to be walking a whole bunch of girls down the aisle before you can snap your fingers, man. <laughs> that's just, time flies. And like, what is going to be that burden of your heart? Are my kids walking in the truth? That was his great concern. Walking in the truth is not the same as acknowledging the truth. I know a lot of Christians who say, oh, I believe. So do demons, is what I want to say to them. So do demons. And they tremble. I don't even see you trembling. <laughs> you know what demons don't do is they don't walk in the truth. As believers, we don't just acknowledge God, but we live it out. If you're here and you've been sitting in church if you've been coming through church for many years and church has never gone through you, you've got it all wrong. This truth has to go through us. It has to change. It has to transform us. It does no good if we just sit through church. The truth has to go through us. That's what it means to walk in the truth, to live it out. We have to live it out. That doesn't mean that we're perfect in doing that. Only Jesus is perfect. <laughs> we need to be obedient. Now, he commends the recipient of this letter. He commends Gaius, and he commends him for his hospitality. Do you know what the Greek term that we translate as hospitality literally means? Hospitality means kindness to strangers. That's what the term means, kindness to strangers. I think we have much to learn from the ancient world. We have regressed, not progressed in this respect there was an ancient practice in the Bedouin world, you can still find it today, where if they will accept you into their care, they will treat you as a guest as though you were a king with great honor or a queen with great honor. And they live to serve you. And to, and to, they live that way. And you see this even, yeah, I know Afghanistan has, has found some interesting spots in our history, but even the passion way, where once someone agrees that you are their guest, they will give their life for you. I think that we've really lost that. Our culture is not good at this. We're not good. Oh, if you're a stranger, um, I will, uh, you know, maybe I'll buy you a hotel and you can stay far away. <laughs> what? <laughs> That's not the kind of, of care that is true kindness to strangers. 
You know, as Jeremiah was, was sharing, as Anna was speaking, you know, we got an opportunity in this region, and you especially have an opportunity with the campus ministry here at Potomac State. Friends, don't miss this. Let this apply to your practice as a church. You have a lot of strangers that are going to be able to come through. And this church may have an influx of, of guests, of visitors. Take them into your home. Show them kindness. Give them a home-cooked meal. Tell those, you, know, you don't have to be anything special than just loved by the Lord and showing his light and love. That will mean a world to these kids. Please remember that. Show kindness. We can infer, as he writes this, verse 5 and 6, Beloved, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. So back in verse 3, he talks about the brothers came and testified to your truth. So what you have is itinerant missionary work, itinerant ministry going on. People would go out, and they would, they would share uh, more missionary care, more preaching, more teaching, what's going on with these churches. And what was happening is that people would welcome them in, even though they were from a different region, strangers didn't know them. They would come, they would welcome them, and they would treat them with great honor. You remember, Second John was written to caution because our mission was love, but if someone comes to you and doesn't bring the truth, then you're not supposed to welcome them. Don't welcome them into your house. But here, what we see is, it's a good thing. This is what we're supposed to be about, is welcoming these guests as they come through and showing them great honor. You can see that Gaius was obedient uh, to this grace of hospitality. The Greek word for hospitality literally translates, like we said, the love of strangers. It's almost impossible to show too much hospitality. And I just want to encourage you, just a practical word about hospitality. And, you know, that's this. It doesn't matter how great the food is you serve. It doesn't matter how clean your house is. That, that you need to put away. What matters is how warm your welcome is. Okay? Just, I want you to let that sink down deep. Because some of you are perfectionists. <laughs> and you're like, my house isn't clean enough. My, this isn't, my kids aren't obedient enough. My, this, and you're, you're, because things aren't perfect, you think, oh, I can't invite people into my house. Oh, I don't have a lot. I don't have a lot of money. I don't got great food. Stop it. It's about your welcome. Work on your welcome. Okay, just, just a word from a brother. Work on your welcome, right? You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, verse 6 ends. So missionaries were doing God's work. We see them doing God's work. And the sending them on their way in a manner worthy of God probably refers to some financial support as well as just treating them well. We see the extent of his care. We think of, of Abraham, how he meets the Lord in the book of Genesis. And as he was approaching his tent, how he... He ran to tell Sarah to do her very best to honor these who came. The church would do well to regain this principle of, of honor, I believe. And, you know, there's a call, a special call to missionary and, and to minister care here as well. Um, let me just read verses 7 and 8 and then share a little, a little personal story here. For they've gone out for the sake of the name. So they're going out for the sake of the gospel. They're accepting nothing from Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these. 
that we may be fellow workers for the truth. When, when you care for someone else, you're helping them do what they're doing. This is, we give to support our missionaries because we want to be part of what they're doing, what God's doing through them. Um, there's a moral imperative that we should apply, and that's to support itinerant ministers. And I just, you know, it's, I say itinerant, and in other words, they're making their money from the gospel. You know, we have some, some car issues that came up recently, and uh, <clears throat> I was meeting with someone at a business in our, in our town, um, and she was a part owner, and she said, you know, I want to invite you to bring your car in, and, and we want to we care for your expenses. And I was like, what? You know, and she's like, listen, uh, the, the owner here is a Christian, and, uh, and, and we believe that we want to support people who are making their ends meet by preaching the gospel, by being a minister. And uh, I don't take help very well. I'm like, well, no, I don't know. I can care for it. But I, I, I was thinking about this passage, and I was like, wow, well, that, you know, that, that's one of the graces we should do is to receive help when others want to help it. And it touched me. You know, there's someone out there who's a believer who's who's got the means to help and they believed like well if you're a minister we, we want to help you I mean, that is that is a humbling thing and it is a good thing it is a gracious thing and that's something that we should do so we're getting some help with our with our car and that is that's an amazing amazing gift of grace and i praise god for that i think we can all improve our care for others and, and our care for people who minister for the sake of the gospel now, there's other people. And here, the Apostle John talks about Diotrephes. He writes in verse 9, I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, doesn't acknowledge our authority. So uh, this is, is the problem that we run into in every social setting, is that certain people are so bound up with the sin of pride that it just... It multiplies sins in their life. They have to be first. They got to be in charge of everything. They got to have the last word, the first word. Everything has to go through them. They become the gateway for everything. And so the letters that John's writing aren't being respected. We, some have, have asserted maybe there's even a letter that John wrote that's been lost <laughs> because this guy won't let it be read in front of the church. Now, the name Diotrephes we can study from ancient literature, it means like nursed or raised by Jupiter or by Zeus. It's a name that's typically only reserved for people that were in sort of royal families or some kind of families with lots of, of money. So whether or not this is, it's a bit speculative, but perhaps he was a person of some means. And because he had means, he had authority Maybe it was his house they were meeting in. Maybe he was in charge. Maybe he was a pastor. Like It's not clear uh, his role in the church, but he definitely was exercising a kind of authority that was uh, a poison, and sin compounds upon itself. You know, we have the saying amongst pastors and the council that hurt people hurt people. If you've been through hurt in your life, you've got to be real careful. If you've been raised to be a proud person in your life, you've got to be real careful. Because that pride will give birth to more pride, and that hurt will give birth to more hurt. It's a, it's, a, it's a shame, but whatever his background was, he was definitely a problem child at this church. Verse 10, so if I come, I'll bring up what he's doing. Now listen to this list. 
It's not just that he's proud, but practically speaking, it says he's talking wicked nonsense against us. That's not good testimony. (laughs) He's not content with that, which would be bad enough. He refuses to welcome the brother. So he's not showing hospitality, kindness to strangers. He's refusing. And he stops those who want to. So he's stopping other people from showing hospitality. And he puts them out of the church. I mean, that guy. (laughs) Pride's wicked. It gives rise to lots of secondary sins. You know, pride is the, the fountainhead sin that really brought upon the fall of man, the pride of Satan. You know, uh, the old British writer Thomas More quipped, you know, the devil, that proud spirit, cannot bear to be mocked. Think about that. The devil is proud, so proud. He, he can't be, he can't take himself lightly. He is Supremely self-important. Think about how opposite this is from what you read in Philippians 2. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, you know, who though he is in the form of God, he humbles himself. Right? Consider one another's interests more important than your own. You need to look, look at our heart. Again, that the story of diatrophies is not so that we stand up and go, that person, <laughs> you know? But it's so we examine our own heart. Am I, am I this person who's got to always, it's got to go my way? I think all of us need to face the pride in our heart and put it to death by the Spirit. Now comes the principle, verse 11. And uh, one study Bible has just summarized this with the integrity of faith is proven by actions. Listen to verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil is not seen God. I mean, that's a very Apostle John way of saying. I mean, you've read this in 1 John. Whoever does this is that. Whoever does that is that. He's, just, he's always parsing, separating things out, making things clear. And that's a, that's a principle, really, at the heart of this whole letter. If you walk away with something, we need to imitate what is good. Look to the good examples in your life. Think about them. My father was a good example in my life. I know some people... Don't have good examples in dads. I will never regret having a good example. My dad was a great example. He, he still is to this day. Even as he says, I suffer from too many birthdays. <laughs> My wonderful dad, a great example. My wife would sometimes say to me early in our marriage, why don't you go spend some time with your dad? <laughs> he was a good example. I'd be calmer, more level-headed wisdom of the Lord just kind of pouring out of him. It's a beautiful thing to have a good example. Friends, what I'm learning, and what I'm sure you're learning too, is that we can't always be looking up to that example because what happens? (laughs) The Lord calls their number and they're gone. And then who are we? We must be the example. We must be the example so that others will follow us. Here is a call for us to set an example for others to imitate. Our life is a breath. It's so quick. Very soon we go from needing examples in our life to being the example in the church. Imitate what is good. Set a good example. Show that love so others will imitate. 
You know, some people feel like, man, I'm just in a small church. I'm just in a small town. I don't know. Listen, it just takes one eternal soul who sees your good example and imitates you to make an eternal difference. This is why I think it's right. Francis Schaeffer wrote a little pamphlet, No Small People, No Small Places. It's so true. Whether it's your kids, whether it's someone else in church, whether it's someone who you, you just brush shoulders with, maybe at work, you know what? Set an example. That is a testimony that we're from God. It's a central lesson, I think, in this little letter. Set an example. That's what the pastors were supposed to do. 1 Timothy 4, verse 12 you know, the apostle writes to this young pastor, don't let anyone despise you for your youth, but what? Set an example in your speech, in your conduct, in your love. Probably the courier who carried this letter is a fellow named Demetrius. That's a good and likely bet. The Demetrius was a guy who was handing this letter to Gaius. We see this with the book of Philemon which is the Apostle Paul's writing to Philemon concerning Onesimus. Onesimus had been a slave. He had run away, which was punishable by death in this culture. He'd run away, and now Paul was encouraging him to take him back. And we read in the book of Colossians that who was it that was carrying the letters? Who was going with these letters? Onesimus. It's probably Onesimus who took this letter, handing it to Philemon, and I think that's likely here, that Demetrius is taking this letter and handing it to Gaius. And now the Apostle John's going to say, look, consider this guy, Demetrius. He's received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. To imitate good, you've you got to know who the godly people are. And the, and the godly people show up by what they do. You are known by your works. Warren Wearsby, uh, I used to call him the Yoda of evangelical pastors, you know, wise guy, love Pastor Wearsby. He used to say, you know, um, we're supposed to be fruit inspectors. We look at people's lives, he goes, supposed to be fruit. We're not to judge, but we're fruit inspectors. Going around, you're going to see the fruit in others. When you taste and see the godliness growing in others, wow, you're tasting and seeing God is good, right? The Holy Spirit yields these fruit in life. And Demetrius has been a, uh, <laughs> a wonderful testimony. He's received a good testimony from everyone, from the truth itself. You know, uh, one of the things that I always ask of my praise team at our church, I have like five C's. I want you to show and be able to testify to your conversion. And then to your character. I want someone else to be able to testify to your character. I always say, I want to know that you're, you've got proven character, and I don't want to hear just from your mother. I want, you, I want you to have a testimony. Competency, you've got to have basic. We're not professionals, but you've got to have competency in whatever ministry you're working in. You've got to be committed. Whatever you commit to, you've got to keep to it. And then community. You're, you're part of, of, a, of a ministry team, and, and I'm a pastor, and I'm, we, we need to have a good respect and rapport. But that character piece is, is so so important. I tell you how many people I would love to invite to join our ministry team. 
I'm like, wow, well, you're a great singer. Wow, you're a fantastic, you know, musician. And I go on Facebook. And what, what do you find out on Facebook? This ain't not going to work. <laughs> you are trying to be two people. That does not work. You cannot be Sunday person and then be, you know, Monday through Saturday person. That's not a thing. You need to be one person. Be consistent. Have good and godly character so no one can speak evil of you. Be consistent. He writes here about Demetrius. We also had our testimony. You know our testimony is true. It's a valid thing, and we also know that it was the truth itself, the, the witness of the gospel that was bearing witness to this fellow's life, Demetrius. There was good fruit to bear. Well, this could have been a much longer letter. In verse 13, I had much to write to you, but I'd rather not write with pen and ink. Friends, we've gone through a couple strange years, some of the strangest years for some of us in our lifetime, where many churches could not meet for periods of time face-to-face. And uh, I know that that's still a highly, been a highly controversial thing in our whole world. I had much to write to you. Friends, I hope you understand that, that ministry in life is supposed to be face-to-face. You know, I, I get these magazines. The future of the church, an article will say. It's all going to be online. It's all going to be digital. It's supposed to be face-to-face. Hear it. This is, this is the desire of Christians for one another, is the desire to love. And the desire to love is the desire to truly give and to receive and to share and to sacrifice for. And that can only meaningfully happen face to face. If you've been in a long-term relationship and you don't desire to be face to face, something's wrong with that relationship. <laughs> it's not good. Either you, you know, what do they say? You know, that, uh, that distance makes the heart grow fonder or it makes the heart go wander. Right? You either, I mean, this is going to be a breakup or we're going to get closer together because we also want to see one another. That's the Apostle John's desire, face-to-face ministry. And, and he, and he it uses the, the Christian expression, friends. The friends greet you. And he says, greet the friends each by name, verse 15. We think the Apostle John was an old man at this time, and and yet he was still, in his heart, remembering people by name. I'm going to read you a very short closing thought from, uh, from church history. I read one to you to close our message last week, a reminder that these were real people who lived real lives, not just so lives. One of the things that I needed shattered in my life was the belief that things in the Bible happen on a flannel graph board in Sunday. I needed that shatter. I'll never forget going to Israel. That's where I proposed to my wife on the Sea of Galilee. It's a real place, right? It's a real place. It actually is there. And I remember getting off a boat on the Sea of Galilee, standing on a dock, and I hear this sound. And a guy came jet skiing around. I was like, you can't jet ski on the Sea of Galilee? This is the Sea of Galilee. It's like, you can't. And I so needed that shattered because it's a real place. Yes, it's a real lake. Yes, they're really jet ski, even on the Sabbath. You know, sinners, right? I mean, it was crazy. It's a real place. And friends, this is actually real. The Apostle John is not a just-so story or just-so character. He lived. And the church historians wrote about him. I shared last week the account that was preserved in memory about his concern over a young man 
who had fallen away from his faith. And remember, he ran out on a horse and pleaded with him to come back and repent. This is just a short story. And um, Jerome writes about this in his commentary in Galatians 6, verse 11. He, he writes this, and uh, this is the source is probably from Hegesippus' memoirs, for whatever, if that matters to you. If you really want to chase this down, I can, it can help you later. But listen to this. The blessed John lived in Ephesus until extreme old age. His disciples could barely carry him to church and he could not muster his voice at the end to speak many words during individual gatherings he usually said nothing except little children love one another the disciples and brothers in attendance annoyed because they always heard the same words from him finally said Teacher, why do you always say this? He replied with a line worthy of John. He said, because it's the Lord's commandment. And if it alone is kept, it is sufficient. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, as we bow our heads before you, we want to thank you for your great love. I want to thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that you hold us fast. Thank you, Father, for your great promises, your faithfulness. Draw our love out, I pray. Help us today as we consider this little letter not to be a diatrophies, but to be a good example. Not to be proud and ruled by sins, but to be ruled by the humility of Christ. O oh Lord, if Christ was proud, we would have no place in your kingdom. We could have no voice before your throne. Jesus would never have said, pray in my name. We would be castaways, unworthy. But Jesus shows the love that is in him when he tells about the shepherd who lost a sheep and went out and found him and came back and said, Rejoice! I found my sheep. And then he tells about the, the poor woman who lost her coin, swept her house till she found it. She calls her friends and says, Rejoice! And then to show us the compassion of God the Father, he tells, of the man who lost his son to sin. And when he comes back, that prodigal son shows your love and says, Rejoice! This son that was dead is found. Help us in that love, Father, to show your love to others, to sacrifice this life. Everything we have came from you, whether it's the food on our table, the roof over our head. Help us to show that compassion, that love, Lord, we pray. Thank you for the example you set. We look to you first. and Help us to look like Christ so that we can set an example for others to follow. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.